This is a Maybe You Like It production. To find more productions, including podcasts, radio plays, and stage plays, visit www.maybeyoulikeit.co.uk. Maybe you like it, maybe you don't. Well, this is just something I worked up. Uh, I'll do it for you. Maybe you like it, maybe you don't. Hello, I'm Jake, and this is the Maybe You Like It podcast, the podcast where we take plays, films, and more that have never been staged before, or are never likely to be staged again, and we talk about how we stage them. As always, I'm joined by Caleb. Hello. Hi, Caleb. How are you? I'm, I'm good. How are you, Jake? I am good. I'm glad we've gotten through this bit with no awkwardness this week. Um, <laughs> I felt I felt like I've skipped over you recently, so I thought I'd acknowledge you a bit more today. Thanks, um, thanks for checking in. Yeah. <laughs> um, and today we are joined uh, for Epilepsy Awareness Week by a writer and producer, Tom Riles. Hello. Hi. How are you doing? Yeah, absolutely living the dream. Um, it's a bit like grey and wet right now while we're recording, so it's not a great mood outside, but I'm having the best time, so there we go. Excellent. We're all tucked up in our little podcasting studio, so... <laughs> Yeah, are, are very professional. Definitely not in COVID enforced, separated in bedrooms. <laughs> um, but we sound great, so that's all that matters to you. And so, Tom, you have brought us what is our first novel that we've done on the podcast, which is really exciting. Oh, great! And that is the Gravity of Us by Phil Stamper. Yeah, Gravity of Us was uh, published in 2020, and to some acclaim, it was uh, on the Indie Next list pick, um, and it was an Amazon best book. On- uh, in the year it was published as well. Tom, what made you pick The Gravity of Us? So I accidentally stumbled upon this book uh, last year, just after it was released, and I am absolutely obsessed with young adult fiction. You know, most of the time it's faded now, but I normally have purple hair and, you know, run around in cartoon t-shirts, and so people normally assume that I'm a young adult anyway. <laughs> but, um, you know, I'm just obsessed with young adult fiction, and I found this... I'm also obsessed with space and it kind of brought all those things together. I thought it was not necessarily a novel that in its current form was, you know, a perfect story. But I did think it had a great story at the heart of it. And I think that it's the perfect kind of book that should be a musical. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to get into it. Um, Would you be able to give us a sort of brief rundown of, of the plot, beginning, middle and end? Obviously, it's it's a novel, so there's quite a lot to it. But if you just give us the broad brushstrokes, that'd be great. Yeah, totally. So there's this guy called Cal. Uh, he's about 17. He lives in Brooklyn. And he's a bit of a social media influencer. There's this fake app called Flash Fame, which is a bit like the live function on TikTok. And then what happens is that his dad is recruited into this big fictional astronaut program. So he's going to be an astronaut. They have to move to the middle of nowhere. He's really hating his life. He's like, this is going to be awful. Thankfully, when he turns up um, sort of on this big campus where all the astronauts live, one of the other astronauts has a son who he's really fancies instantly from the first moment. And he's like, oh, actually, maybe this is not going to be the end of the world. So the book goes into this kind of 
almost like an epic story about him trying to learn to survive in this very new environment. Um, he's got Cal, the other cat kid that um, he's sort of fallen in love with, is called Leon. He's got a sister called Cat as well. And they become this little trio together. And basically, there's a pre-existing TV show about the astronaut program called Star Watch. So this kind of like evil corporation. And they try and stop him doing these like news broadcasts that he's become famous for. But he continues. And so he causes this whole fuss. He's, you know, they threaten to sue him at one point. And it's the story of him trying to maintain his identity and his career as he does it. What happens is that through loads of small interview moments, Star Watch want to get rid of him. Because they're like, oh, he's taking all the attention. He's getting all of these views on his streams and stuff. And Star Watch are like, you know what? We need to get rid of him. And so they set up a bunch of scenarios. And you don't really realize while you're reading that there are all these set up scenarios. And then they get to this point where just after there's been a satellite launch and the satellite blows up and he's unsuccessful. And they get to this moment where they do a special on Star Watch and they reveal all of these things. So, you know, he's fallen in love with this guy called Leon and they reveal a clip out of context of him saying he wants to move back to Brooklyn. They reveal a secret clip where it turns out it wasn't his dad that was chosen for the astronaut program. They chose him for the astronaut program because they wanted him there as a social media influencer. So then his dad feels useless. You know, all of these relationships that he's built, all of this life that he's built to try and survive on this campus entirely falls apart and is it's fully destroyed. And so what he has to do in the end is that he has to launch this kind of final special where he retells the story of this huge astronaut program and really focuses on the lives of the engineers instead of all the big dramas and stuff like that. And, you know, and he saves the day in the end and everybody, everybody's in love by the end and it's all a lovely happy ending and it's a very, like, soppy gay romance by the end, but um, with a lot of astronauts thrown in. Yeah, Brill, thank you so much. Yeah, I I have to say, I mean... I did enjoy it. It was it's a it's a really nice read, and there's enough of that sort of fun astronaut space stuff that really kept me hooked. and And I thought as well the sort of the way it's sort of dealing with the social media, it should be really clunky. Like this kind of stuff, it feel is usually really clunky. But actually, I thought it built up enough of like what Flash Fame as an app kind of does, but without having to go into the absolute detail of how it works that you kind of got this sort of social media story that won't go out of date in like five years time, I don't think. I think it will remain sort of basically making sense. Yeah, what I think they did really, really well is that they didn't base it on pre-existing social media technologies. So they just kind yeah. of, whereas social media is very much about personality and identity a lot of the time, this one was very about distributing news. And we don't really have an established social media app that is just for distributing news to people and running live streams about, you know, current events and things like that. So it because they removed it from reality in that way, I think it's got a lot more longevity to it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Although at the same time, there are mentions in the book of uh, artists like Khalid that maybe won't be so long lasting. That would be, be interesting. Because so, I remember reading some rule for authors that you shouldn't mention someone that's not a particular amount of famous because they won't, <laughs> they, won't they might not carry over. But it's, it's, it's very interesting. Well, those are references yeah, but, we can but, easily change to adapt yeah, to the exactly. stage as well. I, I, found, I found it fascinating, Tom, that in your in your plot breakdown just now, you kind of almost completely removed the romance element of it. Whereas I, I would have, I kind of would have thought that, that it, that's like the primary, it feels, it feels like the space stuff is a vehicle for romance or a vehicle for, at least a vehicle for finding, well, YA romance is often not really about romance. It's about finding your identity and finding mm. who you want to be. And I feel like it's all very tangled up. Yeah. But, um, I, 
Yeah, what do, what do you think I about mean, that? I think the romance storyline is definitely a storyline that we're looking at th- almost like through an Instagram filter. You know, it's a very mm. kind of sepia tone, kind of soppy, you know, oh, let's not fix each other kind of thing, which, you know, is very like how you first begin to develop a romantic voca- vocabulary as a teenager anyway. Like you kind of imitate, you know, soppy Instagram poetry or whatever it is. And so that's kind of authentic. But I think sometimes that although it is thought of as a romance novel the point of the big cataclysmic moment where they reveal all these clips that they've got is not just about the romance it's about the relationship mm. with the dad and like his sense of self-worth and identity and you know what he builds is a set of relationships which allows him to survive in an environment that he you know might not otherwise survive in and it's about all of those relationships falling down and so sure i think you know maybe queer teenagers that are reading this novel are going to be really drawn in by the romance side of things because often romance is the bit that queer teenagers don't get to access in real lives because, you know, we might not have come out, we might be living in presentations that don't match how we feel and things like that. And so that, you know, that might be great for those people. But I think in terms of this like real general audience, there's this huge story where like, it's about a teenager that manages to change the course of political events. What I didn't mention is that right at the end, this special that he creates, it manages, they were going to cut the funding for the space program and he gets the funding back again because of this special that he creates. And so, you know, I definitely think there's something more than reducing it almost to this romance, something quite epic about it. Yeah. And what I liked as well is that that that, that relationship is, it's never in an environment where it's, questioned as a relationship everyone the parents and everyone are just immediately accepting of that relationship taking place as well and I thought that that was nice because it meant that you know we could have this budding romance but also we could have that focus on Cal's Cal's identity and his and the sort of crisis he's having in all of the relationships in his life like you said yeah yeah you know like I'm 27 now so I'm about 10 years out of date for young adult fiction but when I was a teenager like the coming out story was really having its moment 10 years ago and it was all about like the process of coming out but now I Mm. think we've kind of moved past that as like a cultural moment in the sense that you know there is largely a generation now that have grown up seeing queer characters on TV. They've grown up, you know, seeing queer celebrities. Whereas, you know, I first saw a gay person on TV, I think I was about 15 or 16 and Christopher and his kind was on the BBC. And that was the first time I'd seen a gay storyline. And that's not exactly like, I wouldn't say that that story is a particularly healthy gay storyline either, but like now that's Mm. because of all that's changed. Like, yeah, it's great that, they don't have to come out and they don't have to deal with like homophobia from their parents and things like that. It's a very nice version of the future. Yeah, absolutely. Just an absolute normalization of Mm. those narratives, which is great. Yeah. There's an author's note at the end where Phil Stamper says like the, the drive for them writing the book was that they hadn't like read themselves growing up as as a as a queer teenager i think a lot of young adult fiction authors say that as well like you know they're very like write the books that you Mm. wish you had when you were a teenager because there'll be teenagers now that want them patrick ness says that a lot as well Mm. yeah absolutely yeah brill okay i think we sort of we talked around the book a bit which is nice and got some of those key themes out um tom you sort of mentioned to us before that you you you've kind of got a, a broad idea to set us off and on staging this. So, so how would you begin to stage this book? So basically I think that this book is absolutely crying out to be a musical and I think it's crying out to be kind of a big stage, you know, loud music musical, not like a, a something necessarily that is going to be thought of as high art and innovative, but almost like a big 
commercial style, big, bold feeling musical. And the reason mm. for that is that I think the novel one has huge emotions in it because it's seen through the lens of a teenager. I think it's two got huge scale because they actually changed mm. the level of national events. And three, I think there's so much space in the novel of things that haven't been written yet. Like the novel is only, I think it's like 220, 24 pages, something like that. It's like 224 mm. pages. It's pre pretty light novel. Like it's a pretty quick novel. And there's so much space in there for adaptation to, to sort of recreate it. that I think there's a huge potential for it to be a musical. And I think mm. the way that you do that is by almost framing it using this flash fame app. So, you know, the way that we've seen a lot of like social media technologies being staged in commercial musicals over the last five years. And we draw on that and then begin to build up this whole world, which then literally comes crumbling down. At the moment, you know, that the satellite blows up and falls to the falls to the ground. So do all of these connections that he's built as well. Yeah. Yeah. I just think it's crying out to be a musical. And the, fir the first moment I, I when I was reading that, I thought, oh, yeah, this is really got the makings of a musical was that first astronauts party that he goes to because i mean the word that keeps coming up in the book is opulence yeah, yeah. which is exactly what we want from these big stage musicals is this sense of opulence and i feel like those big scenes like the parties and things are just perfect for big broad musical numbers that are you know like just just a lot of fun to see mm. on stage and, and fun to be a part of as an audience yeah i mean i'm a big believer that even large-scale musical theatre is still a storytelling form. So it's not just a mm. case of, you know, creating numbers where you can put some big costumes on, but, like, the story, the way that the story can be told in these, like, huge party numbers is great. Because, you mm. know, if you... There's, you know, even just the title of it, like, as soon as I read the title of it, The Gravity of Us sounds like a song. Like, it instantly sounds like a song. In those party numbers, mm. all they do... Uh, all the party scenes, all they do is talk about music half the time. So that this campus that they're on is this like fake sixties American nostalgia, and there's this um, like record machine. And because Cal's from Brooklyn, he's that like, obsessed with like old cassette mixtapes and stuff like that. So music is literally like in the fabric of the entire thing. Mm. And when you find those novels that are those, those source materials that have music in the fabric of it already, where all you have to do is like inflate certain moments and like give it language and poetry and song, it's actually a really easy process of adaptation a lot of the time because they, they want they want to sing already. And what you're saying as well mm. about advancing the story uh, within these big scenes. I mean, so much of Cow and Leon's uh, romance is around stealing quiet moments away from really loud events and whether that be mm. the sort of like the gardening event or these different parties and things. And I think as well that invites these big numbers, but in, in, in which we have quiet moments stolen away within mm. like within the actual songs. And I think that would be a really nice way of telling that romance as well within the sort of grand narrative of the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing, the helpful thing is that about those really quiet moments between the two boys is that their intention isn't to fall in love. You know, they're actually trying one, like Leon is actively trying not to fall in love and Callie's just trying to survive. And so because their yeah. intention is not just to fall in love, then you won't end up with these kind of like very on the nose, nothing's really happening love songs. What you end up with is these songs that are about, you know, the stars that they're looking at and it becomes subtext and, you know, and you get all of that complexity because, it, you know, they're not just trying to fall in love. Like there's a whole complex where Leon is like, I don't want you to love me. And that kind mm. of like tension, because ultimately the song moments in musicals are points of tension that, that you're trying to resolve. And so because there's tension in all the romance and it's not just direct and they're easily falling in love, then, then it's 
perfect like to write a song about like it's just ready there yeah that's really great i i it's interesting because i was thinking just before as well i think part of you know it's it's a light and and easy read in some ways and i think part of what i didn't enjoy that is that cow seems to be mostly until the sort of catastrophic moment of the of the 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 the, the sort of expose on him he's mostly just taking the path of least resistance through the whole novel but actually by using music to to further the tension of that romance i think you would be able to introduce those barriers into that romance more effectively than even the the novel does at the moment i think that would be really interesting to watch that develop on stage yeah that's the thing like it's very difficult to write any kind of stage adaptation of a novel that is already very tightly written because there's no space Mm. for adaptation. Because when you adapt something, you're entirely telling a different story. You know, it's a version of that story, but you're bringing in so many new things that when you've got the gaps and, you know, maybe you're like Cal could do with a bit more character here and things like that, it, it, it invites you to actually do the adaptation. It's, you know, it's why I think people struggle to adapt things like Dickens because Dickens is so tightly written there's so much information that you're bombarded with it all that actually there's no space for adaptation in that in in stuff in text like that yeah it's so dense yeah yeah whereas I I feel like in this there like there are really clear moments where I was where I was sitting there thinking yeah okay there's a song there as I'm reading in the sense that like you know we it's often often you talk about like people start singing when they can no longer express their emotions well enough in speech in in musicals and there are moments when Cal literally like runs away to listen to music and it's there there are there are moments where essentially he goes and bursts into song just in Mm -hmm. a kind of non-musical singing way which I think is brilliant yeah, and I really like these ideas of like building something, but building something musically mm. maybe that can then fall apart. So I wonder if, you know, I mean, as you say, Caleb, it's, there's quite a clear sense of like a kind of ensemble made of like the town of astronauts. And then you've got the kind of principles of the two families and whether they can each have there's what's what's really good about this is that it's, it's quite a simple plot, but all the characters have very clear wants. Mm and they there's a very clear resolution to whether they get what they want at the end in fact and there's a like a really nice final scene where we kind of go around the room and find out how people are feeling about things and why it matters to them yeah and yeah i i i just kind of like this idea of maybe maybe we can kind of build motifs and kind of each character having their own kind of drive that can then all fall apart and all come together in big numbers mm. in certain places. As I well. think the whole show, you know, the whole show would be about building because what's happening mm. is that they're building a spaceship trying, you know, to try and get to space there. He's building relationships. You know, they're trying to build a new life for themselves, his family. They're trying to build the relationship. And I remember when I first read this, I actually listened to the audiobook when I first read it and I was training for a half marathon at the time. And I was actually out in the middle of nowhere and that chapter where like the whole reveal happens and you feel like the whole thing that you've built throughout and the whole thing that you fall in love mm. with falls apart and you're like, oh God, it's collapsed at the same, just like just after the satellite comes down and things like that. I was like running and I was like felt physically sick as it was happening. Yeah. So it takes you back to the times when like you're a teenager and it literally feels like your whole world is falling apart. And we, you know, we look back as adults and we're like, yeah, yeah, totally fine. But when you're a teenager that it really recreates that like sensation of like, your stomach falling out and just being like, oh God, it's all falling apart. It's awful. Yeah, and it just builds this great sense of melodrama. And I mean that in the most positive way. Melodrama is often a term we use to sort of diminish things. But I think 
when done correctly, melodrama is all about these big emotions. And I think it works perfectly for a coming of age story like this. We're talking a lot about this building up to this moment of the satellite crash. I just want to throw a potential idea in here that would maybe slightly change this of having quite a long first act you know, even up to like an hour and a half or, or something like that, an hour and 45 of all of this buildup of the world and all of these characters and all of this, and then ending that first act with the satellite crash and then extending this whole sequence in which cow is like building this, this video to put everything together again and making more within that of his relationship with his mom and his dad in the second half and building a whole second act out of the repairing of the whole the whole of his life falling apart and whether that would slight i guess slightly change the pace of the first half and the second half a, a little bit from what it is in the novel right now and it would mean we'd we'd kind of be but it, I, I think what it'd be is the first act is all building up and then the second act is a complete deconstruction of what we saw in the first act which i think might be a nice way of structuring yeah i mean i don't know if so roughly at the moment when the satellite falls apart etc is around i think it's like between page 150 160 because i've kind of looked at the pacing of this and so actually it's about two-thirds of the way in that you get that kind of ending so actually if you think about like two-part musicals in that large-scale sense is normally you get the dramatic act one and two in the first half and then act three Mm. then actually you know, it would be great to see that crash happen at the end of the first act. You'd leave them on a cliffhanger, like, how is he going to, is he going to fall apart? Is he going to rebuild it? What's going to happen? And so, yeah. like, I think that's what's clever about it. Like, it has altered our perception because actually when we get to that second half and we're so desperate for him to rebuild, we read through it so, so quickly because we're like, oh, yeah, yeah. And so yeah. it feels shot, but actually it's actually a whole, like, third act that that's in that book there. Yeah, that's really interesting because I, I was reading it on the Kindle, I, I guess I didn't really notice the sort of physical, how far through I was. I mean, it's got the thing at the bottom, but I wasn't really reading it. So I, I imagine that was happening so much later in the book. So that's really interesting. And I think you had this a similar experience, Jake, of imagining it happening later in the book. Yeah, it felt, it felt like a kind of, we spend a lot of time in Brooklyn, it feels like, and then we, that's where he starts. And then we f- spend a lot of time getting to know the environment because you have to world build. It's a novel. That's that's what you do in a novel. And so it, it kind of felt like that. But actually, I guess if you you take out the world building to some extent, because in, in the theatre, we don't do that by writing words. We do that by showing. We do that by by whatever design we, we go with. Uh, if you take that out, then yeah, it feels like if it feels like much more of a, either a halfway or two thirds point. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that would give us a really nice sort of frenetic energetic second act as well which would be really exciting to put on stage i think if you're gonna have a two-part musical you know like some big large-scale musicals are don't have an interval like look at come from away it goes all the way through and that's really satisfying and you stand up and give it like a standing ovation at the end because it's great you know if you're gonna put that if you're gonna put that interval in and you're making that conscious choice then the thing that you need at the end of act one is the thing that makes people want to come back afterwards and the thing that makes you want to come back is that you see him build, you see hit collapse, and then you are so desperate for him to rebuild it or rebuild a new version of it. And that's what brings you back after you've had, you know, your glass of wine or whatever at the interval. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I'm imagining that actually, I, in my head, I've got this lovely image of like, we see them, because there's quite a few moments where Leon and Cal holding hands is a bit of a, a red herring. So it, it's a red herring there where everything feels great and then the, then the crash happens. And it's also a red herring on the TV reveal 
when when the takedown happens where they start by showing that and then they do the takedown Mm. which i find really interesting so i in my head i've got the kind of lovely image of like whatever song is going on we build this kind of lovely thing of like they're them holding hands and getting ready for the launch and everything's very nice and then there's this crash and then actually we keep going and we see him get his phone out and do the the broadcast about how he's not sure what's going on and all this kind of stuff and that's where we end not like directly with the crash and then we have this real knot of tension and we kind of stop exactly where the book stops and then kind of cuts to the next day which i yeah as i say i I think would be really nice i think let's should we talk a little bit about like physically what we'd like this to look like um because obviously we've you know how like there are questions like how does this social media app present on stage is this a big proscenium arch thing or are we talking something smaller you know what what does a crash of a satellite look like those are all i think really interesting questions for us to answer i mean i'm a very think big person like i started to fall in love with theater when i first read angels in america where you've got like a huge angel crashing through the ceiling so fundamentally i'm Mm. like let me crash something through the ceiling like i think with stuff like this you know there's they talk and you you go around the space facility during the book novel and so you see the simulators and you see the machines and that kind of thing and that feels like an aesthetic that really ties in with this idea of the flash frame map as well and this idea Mm. of like physically building technology on stage which then all can fall apart you know imagine the dramatic moment where you know, all of these screens are built into parts of spaceships and it becomes this very tactile mechanical thing. And then when it collapses, there's a physical collapsing, like kind of like that moment in Angel America where the angel comes through the ceiling and you think the world is falling apart because actually the thing that you have built is falling apart. Like let's break some stuff on stage. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds really exciting. And to use, so to use elements of set design to represent both the physical sort of building of technology for NASA and also this sort of, yeah, the software as well. And his mum's a coder as well. It does coding and, and teaches cat coding. And I wonder if there's elements of that as well that you can weave in. So you've got big physical pieces of set, but maybe you're projecting onto them or you've got sort of different screens and things like that. My one, my one concern is, I mean, as you sort of alluded to, Tom, like social media is more and more being presented on stage. And the big one that I think of is Dear Evan Hansen and the way that the set is kind of like, there's like normal bits of set and then there's like these big sort of screens that are used to present different bits of social media. How do you think in our design, I mean, using the sort of maybe the space age theme, maybe that's a way of doing it, but how do you think in our design we can avoid falling into tropes that are already developing in theatrical design for social media. So I think you've kind of got to go back to the writing and think about how that social media functions as like a piece of narrative. And I actually think a better reference for how social media functions in this is something like Fun Home. I don't know if you've seen Fun Home, but basically there it's about Alison Bechdel and she takes moments where she kind of has asides and, it, you know, it's based on a graphic novel about her own life. And so she kind of narrates these moments because it's this kind of metaphor for her writing the graphic novel, etc. And actually, I kind of see social media having a narrative function like that in this show. So it's not just about the growth of social media and a movement, etc. But actually, social media is used to partition and create spaces on the stage so that characters Mm. can access different kinds of narrative development. So they might access a narrator position and those kind of things. And so as soon as you start considering that social media is not just an aesthetic, it's actually part of the the narrative structure that you build, I think it allows you to not just draw on tropes from aesthetic tropes from other musicals, which is, you know, the entirety of what we think of as musical theatre 
is like based on a very commercial canon where people have used mm. tropes over and over and over. And actually, if you every time you come back to the story and go, how do we express the story and how does this function as a narrative, then I think it frees you a bit of just, you know, having some projected text and that kind of thing. So you think about how it functions as a narrative thing. Yeah. I, I don't know if you've seen Dear Evan Hansen Keller, but often the complaint that's made of it is that the social media parts of it are not very specific mm. so there's just kind of like general kind of commenty projections and twittery projections and they're all very blurred and you can't read them and they just kind of serve as sort of like background noise to what's going on in the foreground yeah whereas i think with this so i'm working on public domain at the moment which when this comes out will be this weekend so come but uh little plug there but the, the way that we're thinking about social media with that is like if, if you if you're doing like a live stream then why not find a way to actually get those live streams to be live streamed mm. or if not live streamed then pre-recorded in some way and even art heist that uh, you and i saw caleb at, at the Edinburgh fringe in in 2019 they had a kind of live projection element in because i feel like the kind of what what we want to get at with this particular app is this idea of like he's doing something but you can see it from the angle of his phone all over the world all over the theater all over wherever where from wherever you are yeah and so if we can create that sense of like broadcast whether that is like a kind of i don't know if this is what you meant but the image i had was like we have like this space simulator that's kind of always on stage and we go to it when we go to it but actually anywhere that there's a screen for in whatever part of the set whether that's a computer in the house or phones or just anything like that whenever he's broadcasting it just goes onto those screens as a sort of representative way yeah that that's what i had in my head and i think yeah i think that would serve to separate quite well yeah and and i think as well like flash fame is kind of set up as an app that doesn't really use text at all it's all about video and and live streaming and conversation happening sort of organically in that sense he talks a lot about ne never scripting what he's writing he prepares but he doesn't script and i think that's quite interesting yeah so having having it feel like we've got a space in the design where we can quite quickly and organically present this element of social media would be really exciting. I'm wondering even as well, looking beyond the theatre, is there something in terms of like tie-in digital content or even like an element of bringing like people's own devices into the space and, and how we could use them within the production? Is there a way we can sort of like send things to people's phones whilst they're in the theatre and things like that? And I wonder whether there's something we can do with that as well. Yeah, I think one of the great things about Flash Fame in the book is that it is set in contrast to Star Watch. So Star Watch is this more traditional, kind of old-fashioned, I guess, to our generation TV show, which is all about the mm. astronauts. You know, largely younger audiences don't watch a lot of TV news anymore. And then Flash Fame is this new version of that. So the point of Flash Fame is that it's seen in contrast to a media, which is now kind of dying out, becoming less popular. So so it should feel a little bit modern, maybe a little bit kind of unstable, a bit new and a bit exciting. And I think part of that is that, you know, you're going to get a divide in the audience as well. Some people are going to be audience members that prefer TV news and some people are going to be 
you know, I probably get like 80% of my news from Twitter and I hate myself for it, but you know, like that's where I get it. And actually when you create that divide, then yeah, you could have an option where you can access parts of the show through your phone or through some kind of social media outreach and those kind of things. And I think it feels not like a, an add-on, but like an important textual part of the show. Like it's an important point in the show that this yeah. social media is presented in contrast to an older media form. Yeah, and I think in that sense as well, you could even present the Star Watch interviews that happen throughout in a traditional theatrical way of like presenting them as sit-down interviews on stage and not not streaming them on any projections or anything like that. They just happen in a traditional theatrical form. So that when you introduce these technological, you know, elements, whether that be with people's personal devices or projecting or anything, or even coming up with whole new things that we haven't even thought of yet, you get that that clear division between what Star Watch are creating and what um, Cow is creating on Flash Fame. Mm, yeah, imagine like part of the challenge is that imagine, for example, that. Star Watch is entirely done and there's a huge revolve. Let's just throw a revolve in for the fun because I love a revolve. It comes around, yeah. you've got this huge glitzy Star Watch studio. You know, maybe the person you cast as that interviewer who does all the Star Watch shows is somebody pretty well known in the popular, you know, mm. in the popular culture and that kind of thing. But then actually the challenge is how do you make this 17-year-old kid talking into his phone more engaging than that big spectacle that you've got? And if you can manage to do that as a production team you know, then that's like a, that's like a huge experience for an audience to see the way to like really understand why these like streamers and like the rise of individualistic technologies are becoming so popular now. If you can do that, I think it'd be like a huge achievement. Yeah. And also, yeah, that, that just makes me think as well of this opportunity of meta casting. Um, like you say that having that Star Wars person be someone who's sort of like a very established household name uh, my mind immediately just went to uh, michael sheen because he played who's the name what's the name of the guy in um who used to do who wants to be a millionaire chris tarot you know yeah I mean? he did quiz yeah 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 exactly and he was great in that and i can imagine that sort of character and then maybe even like in your casting of cow you find someone who is a young influencer online and and you use you you kind of use that element in your casting i mean obviously that then becomes like quite quite specific but maybe there is areas of sort of meta casting that you can use as well to kind of yeah i don't know make make the most of these characters in the story as well yeah i mean i like ideas of you know this idea of meta casting not for the purpose of let's sell some more tickets by casting somebody like a little bit famous but you know about we know that what we see on stages isn't real. Like we know it's a bunch of people in costumes pretending to be people they're not, but we choose to mm. believe in it. So actually, if you can overlay the reality that you know with the this kind of construction that you're seeing on stage, and that can be super exciting. Like I think Cal is probably going to be like a really big sing in the sense that it's not going to be, a, you know, I think you're going to need to be a musical theater performer to play that part. You're going to need to like, like carry a lot of songs in that show so probably isn't going to be somebody who's a streamer and has never sung before like i think there's other opportunities for that kind of stuff in other characters like maybe with cat who's a smaller character but i you know i think that is a very like i think people would kill to play cal like can you imagine like this huge this huge part yeah yeah absolutely i was just gonna sort of turn our attention if i can to to the music then which is a pretty key element i suppose you were talking earlier tom about the sort of the 60s uh record stuff and then the like 80s 70s and 80s sort of cassette tape stuff and then you know there's references to more modern music made throughout as well is there an opportunity here or is this something we want to avoid 
or for a, a, a mixtape jukebox musical? I don't. I think it's very difficult to adapt a novel to become a jukebox musical because the thing about jukebox yeah. musicals is that you start with the songs and then you build a narrative around them. And actually, trying to crowbar songs into a pre-existing plot super super difficult. Like makes me feel like I actually want to cry. Um, but, um, <laughs> you know, I'm like, the concept of the jukebox, like, in my head, I'm just like, oh, God, no, please don't don't have to crow about those in. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, I do think there's definitely specific musical textures that are in this show, which will actually function as, like, an, have a narrative function to tell us things about characters. So, you know, you can kind of guess that Cal has got this kind of, like, retro Brooklyn sound, like, and you can kind of imagine it, like, that moment when, there's a moment where everything's falling apart and Cal decides that he's going to drive back to Brooklyn to see his best friend, and then in the middle of the night he actually turns around and doesn't go. But, he, you know, you can imagine him driving down the highway to this kind of, like, retro Brooklyn sound. But then mm. you've also got the, like, older astronauts stuff like that who are trapped in this very kind of sinister 60s recreation bubble and you can kind of hear that the, the sort of that texture coming across as well so i think there's definitely musical textures in there that we can draw on from like pop music and stuff like that but i don't think i you know i think it would be a struggle to make it an actual jukebox <laughs> yeah. show if i'm entirely yeah, honest <laughs> no 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 I, that's completely fair yeah and and so do you see it as a sort of are you thinking of a particular style and then you would put you kind of run those decade layers on top of it or would you see it as sort of like it like for example like in the style of pop from those times or would you want to go for rock or jazz or something and and keep that all the way through well oh i don't know if this is a bit of an unpopular thing to say but i think that when you're writing songs you actually just have to start with the story because i think as soon as you start making Mm. aesthetic decisions about what the music sounds like before you've in fact figured out the story at the heart of them then that's where Mm. you get Mm. pastiche basically and it becomes a little bit kind of Mm. hammy so if you start you know you write the new narrative that the show is going to have and figure out how all these characters begin to interact. And then you begin to build like these sound profiles for the characters that feel authentic to them. Or, you know, if you don't want to take a character centered approach, maybe like a thematic approach and put them in groups or something. Like, I think that is a really great way of approaching, approaching it. I think it's, we should definitely not try and you know it's a whole rock thing let's do pastiche because i think there's something very tender about the story of this show which means that if you push it too close to pastiche it will just seem a bit tacky and i love tacky like i really love tacky like i've literally got like glitter streamers up in my living room but i think you've got to be really careful that you don't go too far with something like this like it has to be a really authentic sincere kind of um feeling i think yeah i i think you're right because i think otherwise we will sort of just choose to reject that conflict within cow at the center of this because there's a certain amount of that that we have to be invited in to take seriously for it to be worth our time Mm. watching i think on stage and i do think with some of these characters those styles of the time that they yearn for will come through through a process of working with like, how do we build motifs around these characters and, and build songs around these moments and, and working yeah. it that way. 
because it's interesting because Cow, you know, Cow is yearning in musically for the eighties, which is when his dad was growing up, and his dad is yearning for the sixties, which would, I guess, be when his parents were growing up. There's a, uh, this sort of sense of nostalgia for a time that was never experienced by these characters through the whole thing. I think that'd be interesting to, you know, in combining, if we're thinking about combining musical textures and 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 sort of shifts in. Uh, the music according to characters. I think there's a lot there to be mined in in writing this. Yeah, and maybe that's the internal logic then. Maybe the internal logic is that the, the kind of music that comes out of each character is based on the era that they yearn for. And so you figure out the era that each mm. character is yearning for and then you begin to build this like, internal logic to all of these sounds instead of just, you know, slapping aesthetics on people. Like that feels like mm. a totally viable thing that you could do with this show because they really do like yearn for these eras that they don't live in and i think nostalgia can be often overused in queer stories a little bit but because of what what it says about childhood which is like a huge complicated point that i could go into but you know i think it can be overused and so you've got to be careful but yeah i think this like sense of nostalgia could be a really powerful thing that they're all craving yeah but i and i also think you could balance it with having a character like leon who i think isn't always entirely developed through the, the book could be someone who yearns for the present who doesn't want to reflect on nostalgia in the past but he yearns to be in the moment and you could then build his whole sort of musical uh, motifs and style around that and so you have these conflicting styles that kind of show and uh, uh, show these different uh, eras but also balance those eras as well against each other and remember this is all set against the backdrop despite all all this kind of yearning for the past we're talking about of this whole theme of exploration and future and moving on and building a colony on Mars. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Col- I don't want to use the word colony, but that's not normally used in the space lexicon. So that, and so there's that contrast the whole time that I think would enable that to not be overused. Yeah, totally. And the way I think music plays in that is that, you know, there's a very kind of sickly sweet love story at the center of this. And, the way that you move away from that and make it seem like bigger and more understood by a wider audience is that you move up levels of conflict. So, you know, you start with internal conflict, then you've got conflict between characters and you've got conflict between a character and society. And actually that conflict between like these people on this small kind of astronaut campus and this these like social narratives that are happening around them you need to bring that sound into the music as well to like lift it up to that level like that i think there's definitely a certain amount of like you know this sounds like an epic space film kind of stuff as well in order to think of it not just as a thing happening in the characters heads but a thing that's happening nationally like you know like allow yourselves to play up to that like huge sense of change that's happening in the country in the novel yeah and i think that again brings us back to just this idea of making it this huge big scale musical with big big songs big sound big sets big set pieces lots of characters making the most of this big chorus as well and i think that i mean yeah it strikes me as a really exciting way of staging something like this yeah i mean you know i think there's two reasons why i thought it had to be big and one is what you've just said like everything in the show is so big but also i think there's a really great opportunity with this novel specifically and this story 
you know, when we try and tell queer stories in the mainstream, we often have to make a lot of compromises in terms of the authenticity of a lot of the characters. But actually what this story does really well is that I think it's found a way to present queerness to the mainstream without having to do that compromise. And so I think part of like what you choose to adapt is me get, you know, why I so love it so much is that I'm like, oh, this has the potential to explain queerness to a mainstream audience and that's really great and I say that specifically because one of the boys doesn't identify as gay he identifies as queer and he uses that language and says you know I you know I've I've been in love with different genders and doesn't make it binary either like you know he says I've been in love mm. with different genders and actually it feels authentic and really easily understood so I think it's really important that when we find these opportunities that present maybe niche things in a way that they'll survive in the mainstream that we take it and we put it on big platforms because that's what you know that's part of working towards progress I think yeah Caleb you you had a thought I think about this sense of a sense of magical realism maybe that you wanted to bring in yeah I'm I'm up for having a a quick discussion on this I don't know I, I don't know whether it necessarily fits what we've talked about so far but before I read the book I saw the title, The Gravity of Us. I saw the premise, which is this sort of, you know, I I guess on the outside is quite a sort of conceited idea for a story. And I also saw the the, the artwork for the the novel which is, you know, like it's this like very, it's like purple and, and orange and there's kind of like, it doesn't look quite real. And I wondered whether before I read it, there was going to be a sense of magical realism in the way space and everything around space is presented in the novel. Now, that doesn't really happen. It's mostly presented as as quite real and quite realistic because Cal is telling the whole story from just things happening to him. And he's telling it um, quite noticeably in present tense as well. So it's all things happening right now to him as 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 it goes on. And I just wondered whether in bringing it to stage, is there something in design or in the way that we do certain musical numbers of bringing in a, a sense of magical realism of sort of the magic of space on uh, in a stage space? So oh my God, I've got so many thoughts about that. I'm so glad I get to talk about this. <laughs> so basically, I have this theory that I think nearly all musical theatre is magical realism anyway. Yeah, yeah. Because you, I don't think you can call musical theatre realism because I don't, I don't know about you guys, but I don't walk around my life singing, <laughs> like bursting out into song. And so, you know, you move away from realism and actually when you start thinking, what does um, adding singing and music do to a story? It allows you to move out of realism in a very kind of um, untangible magic way. So actually when, when you begin to adapt things musical theatre, if there's potential for magical realism in the source material, I think it often like comes out in a huge way. Like it really happened in Wicked, you know, there was that huge potential to make Health of the Fly, etc. And uh, and so when you get to this idea of, you know, space, I mean, everything I make makes space and magical realism anyway. I think part of that is like, you know, space is this huge thing we don't really understand and it feels a bit magic when you're a kid anyway. And so, mm. yeah, I think there's this huge potential to like make the idea of space very magic like coming back to the title like you were saying this idea of the gravity of us i think the importance of the title is that this whole astronaut campus revolves around the gravity of these two boys you know everything changes because of the two of them meeting and so if you imagine the visual of that it feels like a very 
kind of magical thing that you see these like elements of gravity moving around and changing the characters and you know putting things in orbit. Yeah. And so actually, I'm so game for like I, space magical realism. You just bringing me to this idea. Yeah, we've got this revolve on stage that we've mentioned, right? And we can have this sort of glitzy Star Watch. Uh, studio and it can also revolve into maybe offices of nasa or revolve into the houses for the parties and things like that but i'm wondering as well if what we can build in terms of set that is in the air and on the background and stuff could be in this huge like a space diorama like in a huge orbit itself and it can turn and so like the background can can be one thing and then as we move to a a different place the whole thing rotates on a huge sort of thing held by wires i guess i'm not (laughs) i'm not that much of a technical person um and that all rotates and brings us into a new setting through literal sort of like orbiting of like the whole scenery but even it's like a planet rotating rather than just the flora yeah absolutely yeah and but also it means that you know if if you were to look up during it you would still you would see all of the settings laid out up in the air above you like almost like a mobile or something like Mm. that and i wonder if that could introduce Mm. this element of magical realism but it could also later on when things that are coming together are all blown apart it kind of shows that as well and it's cal and leon that pull them all back together again i wonder if there's something in that that kind of brings all these ideas together yeah totally like make it a planetarium you know when I don't know, they were like done at the IMAX when you were a kid and you'd go and it would like shine stars on the ceiling and you'd watch documentaries yeah. like under that dome. Like I think there's huge potential, like if things are rotating around, like you say, and maybe there's a revolve that it's all kind of happening above you. And then, then as soon as you get that moment where everything collapses, imagine, you know, everything collapsing over your head and these stars imploding, you know, and everything's coming down around you. And that's how you build that epic sense of like a teenager feeling like their life's falling apart, you know, like mm. I think as well, that musical theatre gives you more permission to create sets which aren't entirely real because the narrative itself is not based in realism because people are singing and we don't do that all the time it kind of gives you permission to do things that are are less real and more magical in in your set design as well so if you want to be a bit more abstract and instead of building a kitchen just put a kettle there like you can kind of i think we're more likely to believe it when we're watching a musical because our brains are in that kind of magical space yeah we're already filling in all these gaps ourselves and so you can kind of offer the space for people to fill in and 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 that space can be filled by music and by lyrics that that can describe the space and how the characters feel and there's there's so much there that kind of offers all of that that the audience we we don't then need to build it physically yeah for sure i was gonna say what you were just saying about filling space this is like a huge thing about musical theater is that when you listen to live music and it's why i think musicals should have live bands it's a it's a physical experience you know it's like that moment in rent where you get contact and it's a very frenetic thing and it makes your body physically tense when you experience that music live. And then as soon as you get the alcove, you reprise after it and it drops into these very like relaxing tones. The, the, the way that your muscles react to going from incredibly tense to relaxed is a very physical thing. And the reason why I cry my eyes out at the alcove reprise is because my muscles are doing the same thing as my brain is doing. 
it, mm. like in response to the narrative. So like this idea of like sound as a physical thing that you like sit in is like a hugely important part of musical theatre, I think. Mm. Yeah, we've already said, but um, I do have this image in my head now we're talking about it of of a kind of romantic, like instrumental flying scene between Cal and Leon, like kind of like in the La La Land movie sort of thing, uh, which I think would be fun. <laughs> well, I think you could have that, but you um, could also even like the way Cal Senior talks about space yeah. and you could even have like, you could ba- balance that, which we've seen like these romantic, you know, it, lifted up by romance, but you could also balance that with Cal Senior who is just lifted up by the very like joy and passion of the idea of space flight and space exploration. Mm. And I think that yeah. would be really interesting as well. Yeah. Like if I asked you guys, like, to explain to me the physics of how a space rocket works. I don't know if either of you could do that, but I, I'm a huge space nerd. I can't explain to you the physics of really of how a space rocket works. And it's kind right, of like yeah. that sense Thrust. of like, yeah, I'm like, <laughs> there's big rockets, it, you know, metal goes up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, I don't yeah, really yeah. understand it all. And so, But like, we're, we're fully willing to believe that people go to space in these like big bits of metal or whatever they're made out of now, despite the fact we don't know how it works. So like, that's magic there for you. Like, as soon as you start yes. talking about, and you know, Cal Senior's explaining how the rocket works or whatever, like, it's almost magic that he knows how it works. And so that's got a sense of like, twinkly music underneath, oh, isn't it all magical, I think as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm thinking a massive musical number of Cal Jr. going to all these scientists in NASA and recording them talking about what they love about the job that they do. And that offers so much opportunity, again, for making this, you know, this science that they do is magic in, in, a, in a sense. And I think that's really great. Yeah. I just wanted to mention, because you said, Tom, and I completely agree with you, that a live band is such a joy to have in a musical. Where would you put your live band in this? Would you put them in an orchestra pit or would you have them somewhere on stage or are you going to try and get actor musicians involved somehow and have them wi- diegetically within the show? What what would you do with it? God, um, I mean, it doesn't jump out at me as an actor musician show because I don't think... No, I no. think actor musician shows really work when the characters are musicians, but what it does jump out as is that there's a, if you're building this aesthetic that involves the apparatus of space and you might as well show the apparatus of the band as well you know like get the band Mm. on stage let them be seen let them be physically present like i personally love seeing a band on stage you know i'm not attracted to the whole hide the band away pretend the music's like coming from a place that we don't understand you know like we all know that there's a band there. If there's a band, it's not like you don't put them in the orchestra pit and the whole audience goes, Oh wow. It's just coming from a magical place. I wonder where all this music's coming from, you know, like let people see the band, like give them the experience of like, you know, feeling the music. Yeah. I mean, do we even give them like their own platform to be the band, but be visible? Like, um, I believe Devin Hansen. Dear Evan Hansen, yeah, that's a, that's a good example. Or, or I was um, going to say um, This House by James Graham, which is is mostly mm. a straight play, but there is a band that plays throughout and they, they're always put on the sort of gallery above the House of Commons. And mm. so they're always visible. Something along those lines, giving them their own, their own platform. I think that sounds great to me. Yeah, totally. I think, you know, once you work out the function of the music, because I think the first thing you've got to answer when you decide something's got to be a musical is that why has it got to be a musical? Like, why does it need the music as well? And then once you answer that and you figure out why the music is there, then you begin to build this band and maybe, you know, figure out whether it's something a bit more modern or, you know, whether you're going to have a musical theatre band or whatever it is. And then you begin to build the aesthetics around it. But like, I can totally see that, like, 
you know, put them on a plinth or have them above you or, you know, build a, a huge cassette deck, you know, like an 80s cassette and nice. put it flat yeah. and get them all on there. And like, and maybe there's too many revolves in the little turntable things that you get on a cassette. Just make 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 read one really dizzy for no reason. Like, <laughs> um, I, I wonder even I wonder if they can even be yeah. like fellow streamers that that like sh- they have cameras and they show up on the screen sometimes and stuff as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tom, we've we've talked about how this is a universal and accessible story for young people, and we've also talked about a lot of technical elements, how we want to make this a kind of visceral musical experience, um, and. You're partly here because it's Epilepsy Awareness Week this week, and you're doing a show about your experience of epilepsy and and more generally. Could you help us to talk a little bit about how we can make this show accessible for an, uh, uh, an audience of people with epilepsy and also in general how theatre can, can think about that? Yeah, I think epilepsy is like a super complicated thing, you know. There's about 26 medications for epilepsy and you, a lot of the time, at least when I was diagnosed, the way that you figure it out is you go through the medications until one works. You know, epilepsy is a, is a word that a lot of people know, but not many people, including doctors, can really explain it. And so my epilepsy that I had was just called unexplained epilepsy. You know, they were like, we don't really know why it started. And then I stopped having seizures at one point and they don't really know why it stopped. And, you know, bearing in mind that my first seizure I had, I was camping, I was eight. I only seizure when I'm asleep. And so I was asleep camping, had a seizure in the middle of the night, my heart stopped. You know, it was a pretty serious thing that normally you would think, oh, we need all the detail. But actually, there is no detail Mm. other than you seem to be having seizures and we don't quite know why. And I know your heart could stop, but we're just going to kind of have to figure it out. And so it's really difficult to do a one size fits all. So like a few things that have been really effective in theater is that, um, so I used to work at the Lyceum where the Lion King is in the West end. And we had a sheet, which had, if there was going to be flashing lights in the show, I think it was five lines before the light would happen. You would get given the line and the character that says it. So a person could then make an informed decision. Do they need to leave the theater because flashing lights will trigger a seizure or can they stay because it doesn't affect seizures? You know, other useful things are having the opportunity to book um, a seat specifically on the end of an aisle near a door and knowing where the doors are. So if you don't feel well, then you can exit and Mm. have some kind of dignity because actually, you know, seizures aren't always the most dignified things to experience in public. And a lot of people are very used to managing them. But, you know, sometimes it's just nice if things are going to happen that you can go to a private place. So that, you know, they're really simple things. And then beyond that, it's about having somebody in your building who has both like a comprehensive first aid knowledge and feels comfortable that they would know what to do in a seizure. And also, I guess, a bit of an understanding of how can we, if somebody approaches me before a show and says, you know, I've got epilepsy, these things could happen. How do we make reasonable adaptations and make sure we have the capacity to make reasonable adaptations so that, this is a comfortable and caring experience for this person. You know, I was really lucky. Well, I don't know if lucky is the right word. You know, I only had seizures in my sleep, so I wasn't going to have a seizure in a the theatre, but mm. unless I fell asleep in a show because it was really boring. But, you know, like, thankfully, you know, that never happened. <laughs> but uh, at the same time, you know, if I had had seizures in the day, it would have been great because, you know, I could be like, if I have a seizure, you need to call an ambulance as soon as it starts because my heart is going to stop. So like, don't wait and like count the four minutes and be like, oh, it's over four minutes, call an ambulance. Like just call somebody because 
you're yeah, going to need yeah. them. Yeah, that you know, it's really simple, but you know, it's about being able to adapt to specific needs in specific environments, I guess. Absolutely, Brill. Thank you so much for that because I am embarrassingly just so uninformed about that as an issue, and this is the perfect opportunity, I think, to educate myself and and for other people to educate themselves if if we don't have any more to talk about the actual staging maybe we could talk then about the show that that you're doing at the moment tom yeah totally so um i was diagnosed with epilepsy when i was eight and i had seizures for 10 years and basically when i had a dog called eric when i was a kid and when uh, who was kind of like a companion dog and so when he passed away when i was about 23 I decided that actually I feel like it was the end of a really significant era of my life. I'd stopped having what you call tonic-like seizures, which are like the seizures in your sleep where you like physically jerk, etc. And I said, like, actually, I'd love to understand my epilepsy a bit more because I don't remember my seizures. So I had an entire childhood dictated by a condition that like, put me in ambulances, sent me to hospitals, like totally changed my life. I have literally no memory of any of it because I was always unconscious. I have been in mm. maybe 50 ambulances and I, at no point have I ever remembered being in one and I am desperate to go in an ambulance and remember what the inside looks like. Like I'm obsessed, <laughs> I'm obsessed with getting in an ambulance one day and knowing what the inside looks like. <laughs> anyway, so I, I decided to interview my parents and I, I thought I was going to make a show about reconstructing using sound the experience of a seizure. And actually what mm. happens to that interview process is that me and my parents realized that growing up, medical professionals taught us how to keep me alive. They taught us things not to do to stop me having seizures. Nobody ever really taught us, though, how to talk about the sort of emotional and psychological strain of how this condition affects families. And so, you know, we only really finally sat to have those conversations when I was 23. And so I, what happened is that I made the show and what we do is that... We take those real interviews. I know the incredible sound designer called Chris Johnny, and um, we remix those kind of interviews back into the story of my childhood. And we begin to explore how things might have happened if things things had worked out a little bit differently. And it's a very you know emotional show by the time you get to the end. But what I always say is that it's a really hopeful show. Because whereas I once wanted to be an astronaut slash the Blue Power Ranger, fully the same thing when I was eight anyway, so like it didn't really matter. But, you know, and I couldn't be that because of epilepsy. I actually found a lot of other things I could be because of my epilepsy, which were great. And so we get to this place at the end, which is where, you know, it's a very hopeful place to be. Um, mm. Yeah, and that's the the show that I've got running. It can be in Comic Garden this summer, 28th of June to 3rd of July. That sounds absolutely incredible. Oh, brill. And it's called... Can You See Into a Black Hole? Yeah, so the idea is that when I turned eight, I kind of convinced myself that a black hole had opened up in my my head when I started having seizures. Because the thing about black holes is that you can't see them, but they have this immense mm. gravitational power to change things around them. And so that's kind of what my epilepsy mm. was like. I could never see it. Nobody could see it. It was inside my head. But my entire world was like fully changed by the effects of it. And so the show is kind of the story of, you know, young me growing up, trying to understand what to do about a huge black hole opening up inside your head. Because believe it or not, that is also magical realism and uh, there was yeah. not in fact a black hole inside my head so yeah awesome thank you so much for telling us about that i am very excited to see it where can people buy tickets so if you head to the iris theater website it's part of the iris theater summer season there's actually a huge host of shows that are going to be running outdoors social distance this summer it's in the grounds of the actors church just at the bottom of comic garden so 
is super safe. All of the performances of can you see into a black hole are also relaxed performances. So if you have epilepsy and you want to attend and you feel like you might seizure, it's designed in such a way that you won't disturb the show. Or if you need assistance, there will be assistance there for you. Mm. You can book aisle seats if you need to leave. And if you need to attend with an assistance dog, that's all totally fine as well. So yeah, head to the Irish State website and you can find all the sort of access information there as well. Awesome. And thanks again, Tom, for joining us. I, I've had so much fun talking about this, actually. And I coming in feeling like I didn't have very many ideas, but actually you've helped to sort of tease out some really cool ideas on our stages. Oh yeah, thanks. I don't get to, you know, I've not made musicals for a while now uh, or like something that would, look like a typical musical so it's been great to have the chance to talk about musicals again well that that's a question i'm trying to start asking given the budget if you could make this would you oh yeah 100 percent. like tomorrow like you know phil call me tomorrow like tell me that you're happy with your novel to like become a musical find a building i'll start i'll start and go for it because i think that most of the work that i've made over the last few years it's about this relationship between like childhood epilepsy and astronauts and like aspiration and dreams and and how you know disability and chronic health changes you and actually all those themes are things that like one of the reasons why I love the novel is that all those themes come out in this show like it's about these young people that have these huge dreams about what they want to be and space Mm. is maybe like a really great way to begin to articulate them so it very much feels like the like fiber and like the DNA of my work is in this novel as well so if anybody wants it I'm so ready. <laughs> Brilliant. So, I Absolutely. mean, Tom, let's say someone has many millions to offer you right now and a space to put this on. Where can people uh, find you online? Oh, have a look. So basically, <laughs> all of my social handles are at boy and pen. So whatever social media you use, go find me on there. I am literally all over the internet. You can't get rid of me. Most of it right now is about epilepsy, but um, you can, you know, there's occasionally like my tacky outfits and stuff as well. So you can treat yourself to that. Awesome. Caleb, where can people find you online? Uh, You can find me on Twitter, Instagram and Letterboxd at Caleb Lebster. That's C-A-L-E-B-L-E-B-S-T-E-R. And Jake, where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Jake Reesh. That's J-A-K-E-R-E-E. SH and we are maybe you like it productions and this is the maybe you like it podcast you can find us on twitter and instagram at maybe you like it that's with the letter u or you can find us on facebook at maybe you like it productions or you can visit our website at www.maybe you like it.co.uk or we're even on tiktok now at maybe you like it productions underscore or indeed you can drop us an email with your thoughts on how you would stage this differently to us otherwise maybe you like that maybe you didn't That was a Maybe You Like It production. Maybe you liked it, maybe you didn't.